Okay, good morning everybody. It is so wonderful to see everyone. Let us learn today. So we are now at the end of our four-part series that we've been learning about the process of the Pesach. This is sort of the tail end of it, and this is called the role of the rabbi. Um, this shear is, is a very important shear because it's, uh, I think, the most misunderstood of all the pieces. Um, or perhaps not the word is not misunderstood, but narrowly understood. Narrow is an important word when it comes to, when it comes to this. Um, so first of all, I'd like to start off by thanking Paul and Yael Weinberg, who are sponsoring this morning's learning. Leader Nishmas, Mrs. Gloria Weinberg, Lea Gittel Bas Shlomo Mordechai, Alea Shalom. Personally, I did not have the chance to meet myself or get to know myself, but clearly has, uh, has produced an incredible legacy and in which continues. Ezra Sashem, um, Paul, you should have a continued chizok. She should have a lechzegeg ganeden. Um, let, us, let us learn. So what is, what is the rabbi? So the story goes as follows, that, um, th- uh, that uh, there were three great, great rabbis who, who happened to arrive at the same, the same inn. And they were talking and they, uh, this question came up. What is the, what is the role of the rabbi? And this, is, this happened in the 1800s in which um, Rav Yechiel Michal Epstein met with Rav Yitzla um, Blauser or Rav Yitzla Petzelberger, the chief rabbi of Petersburg, um, St. Petersburg, and Rechaim Soloveitchik. Um, whether in fact they, they did meet or whether they didn't meet, they should have certainly met. Um, and, and the story goes is that they describe what was it that, what, what is the role of the rabbi? And so Rav Yechiel and Michal Epstein said that the role of the rabbi is to be a poisek, is to be a person who decides halachic, complicated halachic issues and guides the community when it comes to how to, guide, to, to live a life of Torah. Um, Rav Yitzhak uh, Petzelberger say, um, said the, Rav, the role of a Rav is to be a lamdan, to be a person who is shakur, who is invested in learning of Torah and teaching Torah all the time. And Rav Chaim Soloveitchik says, um, said that the role of a rabbi is to be a father to all of the constituents in the, the town and to sometimes even be a mother as well. And that was the, that was the, 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 the conversation was that obviously they were reflecting their particular roles. They were obviously reflecting the type of rabbonus that they each chose themselves. Uh, Rabbi Yechiel Mechel Epshin, of course, was the author of the Aruch HaShulchan, predating the Mishnah Burah. The Aruch HaShulchan and all of Alacha, even Aruch HaShulchan Asid, where he told you he is a formidable poisek, a, po- a poisek as a rav of a town and as an incredible halachic disaster, as opposed, let's say, to the Chavetz Chaim, who was most uniquely a Rosh Yeshiva and a poisek. The Aruch HaShulchan was a rav and a poisek. So you actually see differences in Alacha, but based on that, uh, that, that particular um, position. Um, Rabbi Yitzhak Petelberger was a great lamdan, tremendous, tremendous lamdan. He was reflecting his own perspective as being a person who invested in Torah and Torah study. And Rechaim Soloveitchik, where before Rechaim, uh, they, they replaced his tombstone. Um, and, they have all, and the new tombstone has all these beautiful accolades on it and all these things and the brisk and derech and Torah and things like that. All he asked on the original tombstone was to be the Rav of Brisk. That was all he said. Yeah, he was the Rav of Brisk. And there's many, many stories told about Rav Chaim Soloveitchik and his, his particular, what he has done, what he did and what he suffered and what he went through on behalf of his, on, on behalf of his community. So Rav, Rav Asher Weiss, when re- recounting the story, I once heard from him, um, he was here in the five towns and uh, he said, so Bahadi Ashli Rav Lamalach. He says, if there's a story and you hear about these three different versions of what it is meant to be a Rav, he says, how can we be, how can we make it to only be like one? You have to be like everybody. And so this is, that's, and that's, and that's what the, the Rabbana says. So it's, it's important to appreciate these are three different silos 
of, of, of job description. And it's important to appreciate that the differences between them and what's different today as well. So let's, 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 uh, let's jump straight in. But before doing that, it's important to appreciate what the Rav is not. Um, so, <laughs> so this is important as well. So many times, so, so, so many times the Rav will, will, will be asked to be a shield or a cattle prod. What, what do I mean? So um, the rabbi will be pulled into something which is in the middle of a uh, acrimonious dispute, whatever it is, whether it's business, whether it's neighborly, whether it's marital, and, and the rabbi is called by one party to go and either reprimand the other party, right, to be the cattle prod to fix the situation, or to defend them against an attack. And in all fairness, the rabbi has not been given the opportunity of hearing both sides. And therefore, the rabbi is thrown into the middle of a, uh, of a situation in which there is clearly not going to be a solution because it will turn to a situation of shuttle ne negotiation, going, this one said this. So they said, you know, but there was actually X, Y, and Z. And you go back, well, they said X, Y, Z. Well, yeah, but there's A, B, C. And you go back and say, oh, well, there's actually D, E, F. And backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And it's not fair. It's not the way it should be. If, uh, and so the, the rav is not meant to be somebody's shield or somebody's cattle prod. The Rav is not meant to be a shuttle negotiator. The Rav is supposed to be. If, if there is a dispute when it comes to, to particular issues, then, then both parties should come and sit down and at the same time present their cases. And then they would have a little more inhibition about saying what they said about the other side and the way they said it because they know that there's somebody else who's there to actually to rectify the scales. Um, and then, then there can be a real, a real mediation, perhaps, if, if, if it's not too late. Usually, it's, usually the Rav is called in when it's too late. But uh, at that point in time, there's the opportunity of this. So it's, it's, it, this happens all the time. Um, where the rabbi is called in as uh, sort of almost as the moral policeman in certain situations. This happens, in, uh, for me, I always sort of smile because this happens in kashas all the time. Because kashas is the perfect example of where um, there's, we're called moral or, uh, you know, rabbinic um, regulations and money at stake and, uh, and, and lifestyle which is at stake. And the two don't always fit so well together. So like, what, I sort of smile because this is an example sort of on a bigger scale of, of this where the rabbi will be called to, to exercise, and I apologize, this is not meant against anybody in particular, but, but where there's moral regulation from different arenas. So you'll have the rabbi, why isn't the rabbi or the rabbis, why aren't the rabbis um, closing down the situation because the music is not appropriate? Why the rabbis not, not, not close down the situation because there's no masking. They should take away the license for the store because there's no masks at the time when there should be masks. Now, just to clarify what, what's happening in those situations, is a particular element of the community wants the rabbi to represent their authority in a particular issue that matters to them. Now, in these particular two situations, or both situations which happen within a few weeks of each other, both of them are representing two fringe elements, that are not fringe, but two um, ex different extremes of the community, living in the same community, and none of them would appreciate the other more regulation. Meaning, the folks who are saying the rabbis should regulate the masking are not the people who want the rabbis to regulate the music. In fact, if the rabbis were to regulate the masks, <laughs> that, that group who, 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 agreed, uh, who, who, do, who, don't, who want the music regulated would, go, would be up in arms and vice versa. Right? So one has to be careful that rabbi isn't simply the moral policeman for one particular issue, one interest issue, because there are multiple interest issues in a very complex community. And it becomes complicated in a situation where authority is at question in general as to what the rabbi is even capable of doing in the situation where, where, uh, where a community has clearly demonstrated there is no um, acceptance authority. Yes? Yeah, I just have a very simple question. Yes. Uh, we haven't got into anything yet. You brought up the subject, you know, my, my parents, you know, for a long period of time when I was showing them, they, they, had, they had business, they also they had, you know, kashras associated with it, etc. Is the, is, are you saying that 
the, the rabbi's authority in terms of kashrut, right, goes beyond just whether the product is kosher or... or, or, or it used to, it used to. Do they have the ability to, to then regulate, you know, what, like you're saying, it should, but it, it, it's no longer that way. I mean, you say it used to be that you had a city and they had, you know, a shaykhet and they had a little, you know, a little, uh, you know, bar or whatever it is that they sold their meat and then a little makolet. And then the, the rov was, it was, or the, maybe there was two rabbonim in the two shuls who would have to deal with the, the kashras so of that and they would also regulate the moral standards of the community. But there's been so much pushback that, that people don't want anything to do beyond that, right? So, so anytime a rabbi will say anything about moral regulation, then, then there'll be pushback. How could you uh, insinuate? How could you say this is a free world? This is a free trade? Is the restriction of trade and all those things like that? So, the, 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 the so to speak, the realm of authority has been limited and limited and limited. Which is why it's always fascinating that the rabbis then call back to extend authority into places where they were not asked to be or they were sued for being. So that's that's where we are we are today. Um, and so, like as an example, just last week, somebody said somebody was saying, you know, there's a new there's a new development going up on on Central. And it was just passed, apparently. Uh, this, is what I, this is what I heard. And of course, there were no rabbis at the meeting. Right? So meaning to say, and, and, it's, and, 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 and it makes sense, meaning to say, we are disgruntled with the state of affairs. We're disgruntled with the fact that there's a lot of people with a lot of money who are, who are coming to this community and using it as a way to, to, as an investment rather than to try to, to, try to, uh, to, to, to fix the community or the betterment of the community. But where are the rabbis? Why are they not doing anything? Right? So that, that's sort of in that, in that frustration. Where are the leaders? And the answer to, to a certain degree is, first of all, they weren't told about it. But number two is, is that, um, is, is that, is that, is that um, there's, there's been a pushback against any form of any other moral regulation. Um, to, to, so, so when there is no morus, when there is no, so to speak, acceptance of authority, then it's hard to expect them to only jump, jump to when it's my issue. That that's the, the, that's becomes the complication. But let's, just, let's dig, dig a little bit deeper. I'll come back to this in a moment. I just want to, it's important for me just because this happens all the time. Where are the rabbis? And a lot of times the question is, is when, the, you, when the rabbi had the opportunity to say something and nobody wanted to listen. When the rabbi asked about moral standard, nobody wanted to, wanted to listen. And it can't be that only in the specific issue that matters in this particular regard, the rabbi has the morals. Right? That, that, that's the, 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 the piece over here. And that's become more and more evident um, today. So the first realm is the rabbi as, um, as, as the teacher. Um, and this, is, this we'll call it the, the rabbi, it's the Petzelberger perspective as a, as, a, as a person who is a teacher. And what's fascinating is, is the name of the greatest leader of all of Jude, uh, uh, in Jewish history is? Moshe. Moshe. Well, what, but the interesting <coughs> is, his appellation is? Rabbeinu, right? So Rabbeinu refers to his aspect of uh, uh, his, his teaching, his, his Rabbeinu as as, as, the, as the Rav as a teacher. Um, and, and in fact, the, there's a number of examples where the, in the Torah it's very clear. So for instance, like in Bamidbar, the parishes of Bamidbar were told, told us Aaron These are the generations of Aaron and Moshe. Then it goes on to list the children of Aaron. So Rashi says, well, what, what, why are they called the, told us uh, uh, Moshe? It should just be told us Aaron. So the Rashi explains, According to Sanhedrin, that this is like, that teaching is in fact like fathering, like, like, like being a parent. We see this multiple times, the end of Moshe Ben Islaf, um, in, in Parshas Vayelech, which is all of Perek Lamed Aleph in Sefer Dvarim, the last thing that Moshe Ben is really told, Baruch, the last Sivui is, is Kisul Achemes Hashirazo, is to write the Torah. And he wrote down 13 copies of the Torah, one for each of the tribes, one for the, the Mishkan, 
And that was, that, that was his way of giving over what was the previous generation to this generation. Moshe Rabbeinu was, was the conveyor of teaching, the conveyor of Torah itself. He was the peh peh daber boy giving to the next generation. He was the model of what it should look like for future generations. So as an example, um, one of the, the Moshe Rabbeinu, if uh, 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 we would say, is the person who um, erected or established Torah Shabbat Sav. Who was the person who established Torah Shabbat Peh? Before he gets to Rebbe, uh, Rebbe Yudan who, who, who um, closed the Mishnah, there was um, Rebbe, Rebbe Akiva. Rebbe Akiva's five Talmidim were the ones who established the five different domains of Torah Shabbat Peh. We know about Rebbe Akiva, the Gemara Brachos tells us, it was a time when the, uh, during the Hadrianic persecutions, the Romans realized that Torah, in fact, was the answer to the success of Israel. This is in source 4. And um, pa- Bob Papus Ben Yehudo, there's a fellow, a, a, a Roman Jew, who came to, uh, to uh, um, Rabbi Akiva and says, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, show you makil kilos barabim voice of Torah. Rabbi Akiva was still teaching. Amaloi Akiva. Yatom is Yorim Ibnei Amalchus. I noticed he didn't call him Rabbi Akiva. He was probably a, class, a, cl- a classmate, right? And so he, he said, I remember you when you were... Anyway, so, but nonetheless, so he says, uh, so he says, uh, he says Akiva, why are you teaching Torah? You're putting yourself at threat. I'll give you an example. He sees that the fish are like staying in one particular area. Why are you free, uh, fleeing? We know that there's, there are nets downstream. So he says, you know what, come ashore, there's no nets here. Like the old, the good old days. I'm not sure if that's an evolutionary comment. Right, but nonetheless, they said the fish answered, he says, you, You're called a smart, a wily creature. We'll die outside. Of course, we call, we, we'll, be, we'll be in abject fear. So the Rabbi Kiva says, Torah is our life. It's our water. If we don't, if we don't look at this, if we don't, uh, if, we, if we don't pay attention to it, we will, we will die. Uh, we will, we will really die. You know, there's a, there's a book called. Just, uh, just, just heard about this last week, which is called, What is Water, and it was, uh, it, 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 it's based on the story in the introduction about two young fish that are fly, uh, swimming, swimming downstream, and they pass an elderly fish. And, um, and the elderly fish says, good morning, young, young men, how's the water? So the, the other ones pass and they say, good. And then the one fish said to the, the other fish, the young one said, what's water? And, uh, and the idea that there's, the, the, that there's something which surrounds us, which we're not aware of, which is our life force, takes a little bit of time to appreciate. And Rabbi Kiva is saying that to Yoda Ben Papos is, you perhaps don't realize this, but if you move out of this environment, you're dead. Right? But there's a lot of things in life that we don't realize. And uh, um, so Amr Eloi, Amr, they said, It wasn't so, so to, uh, such too long. Rabbi Akiva was in prison. And by the way, this was to, going to be his ultimate imprisonment before his death. And Papa Ben was also incarcerated. Now, we don't know if it was tax evasion. We don't know what it was, but it was something else. It wasn't because of his Torah teaching. Right? And, and Papos said, oi, oi. He says, I, uh, I, 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 I was, uh, there was other things I was involved with, which, uh, 
which led me to this situation as well. And just to, just to sort of deepen this, the, the idea is that Rabbi Kiva felt that teaching a Torah, learning a Torah was something so, uh, so part of his, it was the life force in his life. He could not stop it. He was not able to even for a moment. He says, you know, maybe we'll take a siesta. You know, while the Hadrianic persecutions are going, what we'll do is we'll go online. You know, <laughs> he didn't do that. He carried on teaching. He couldn't stop teaching. They tell a story about, uh, about a rob, and I don't remember the name of the rob, who was teaching, and he, and he, had, he had a particular shir he was giving. And it turns out that it was, uh, you know, one of the days that everything happened. The, there, was, there was winds, and there was, it was cold, and there was snow and everything. By the way, folks, did you know there was snow on Friday nights? Yeah, so anyway, so we had a basement here, so we were walking back, it was snowing. Um, so it was snowing, and everything that could have happened in the gale and the and the, the polar vortex, you know, all the things that could have converged yeah. to, to be together. And uh, and and he walks in to give the shear, and there's and there's two Talmidim who came to the shear. And so he gets he get, gets he gets up to the front, and he gives a shear of fire and brimstone, like mamash, like as if there was hundreds of people in the, in the room. And I said to him, "How do you do that? It's very hard to do that. It's very hard to imagine the energy. It's very hard to teach to a camera when there's no when there's no people in the room, right? The energy of the people." So how, he says, how did you manage to you know, find the wellsprings of energy? And he says, I wasn't just seeing the two students. I was seeing their students and their children and their students' students. I was seeing thousands of people in front of me. That's, that's part of the role of the role. Thank you. Thank you. I was looking for Rosh Hashanah of Torah Das. That's what it is. That's what it means. That's one element. That's the idea of this. In fact, they, they say that, um, that, that the following situation happened um, with Rav Kook in Yerushalayim as in Rosh Hashanah. Rav, Rav Kook was the Rav of Yerushalayim at the time. It was after 1920. And, uh, and uh, so the Gabbai came to him in the middle of davening and says, by the way, there's um, down the street... There's, there's a construction going on in a Jewish house, and there are Jewish construction workers who are working on Rosh Hashanah. They're building the building on Rosh Hashanah. Now, by the way, do you notice over here that what, what role is the Rav being called into? The moral policeman, just, just out of interest, right? This happens to be the most unpleasant of situations that a person is put into, right? So we are not going to speak to them, but you should. Right? That's what's really what's being said is we don't <laughs> we don't want to have to have that conversation. Right? But you as the moral policeman should have to go out in the middle of your Rosh Hashanah davening to, to administer rebuke upon these, uh, the, 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 these uh, proletariats. So uh, anyway, so a very unpleasant situation to be put in. And how could you not? You're the rabbi. So, uh, so Rav Kook uh, sends the Gabbai and, he, and he, says, um, he says, I'd like you to go with them and, and ask them if they've heard Shofar on Rosh Hashanah. And he says, if they haven't yet, please blow for them. That was Rav Kook's response. Um, and uh, and, and, uh, and this, fellow, this fellow went, the Gabbai went, and the people were so taken that Rav Kook wanted them to be part of this so much, they all dropped their tools and came to Shul. But that was because he, it wasn't, it, he wasn't administering justice, he was teaching Torah. Right? And so that, that care that comes with it is part of the, part of the role of the rabbi. And this, this expresses itself in so many different, uh, different uh, arenas in this were called silo. So it's in terms of uh, to teach, you need to actually learn. <laughs> <laughs> right? So like it's funny because like uh, I was saying to the Hebrew, we are, we're learning Hilchas Nida on Tuesday nights as part of Smichas Chaver. And it's fantastic and we have 19 sessions between now and Pesach and it's, it's, a, it's a serious month. But I was explaining that you have to understand that, that <coughs> when, when we did this originally, right, in Smicha, this was a year of morning and afternoon. That's six hours a day for an entire year. And then a summer kollel and then years of Shemush with Rabbi Newberg and then with Machon Pua and then revise. You understand? So it's nice to have six, six months of one hour a week. That's, that's great. But you have to understand what went into this the first time around, right? And the second time around, the third time around to get here. This doesn't this happen. 
Smechas, smechas four years at the very least in YU. Right? Just, and in other places, there's not even a time frame. Right? So it, it takes a lot of time to, to, to invest. You can't, every share, I would say, is a three to one ratio of the amount of time put into the amount of time given, like we're called minute by minute. So one hour share is at least three hours of preparation, at the very least, depending on what's, what's going on. A 10 minute share, you can talk about is at least 30 minutes, usually an hour. But it, it, it requires, there's a lot of time invested in these things to, be, to, to, to do this properly. Um, weekly, weekly, monthly sharing, more conversations on topics that the community re relate to. So scholars and residents, all the things that, that, that happen, really like, you know, the, people like only have complaints about scholars and residents, you know, this, they were too long, they're too short, not enough rabbi, too much rabbi, whatever it was, but it happens to be. <laughs> it took a lot of work. It took six months of working and fundraising and all the things to, to, make, to, to bring the Torah to, to the community in that way. Every single program that happens. We'll call it silo number one. Silo number two is the pastoral caregiver. That's what Reb Chaim was talking about in Brisk. So this comes also back to the Torah, where, where when Moshe Rabbeinu in Pashas Balos is so frustrated, these people are just carry on complaining, right? He 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 one thing after the, ne the next. Why even so Aaron, and then they're complaining about the food and then the meat and then the this and, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hey did I give birth to this nation? That you're asking me, Hashem, to hold them in your bosom. Is that really what is expected of me? And the answer is, yes. And therefore, if you're not able to do it yourself, Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm going to give you Shivim Zekeinim. I'm going to establish another 70 Zekeinim to help you because it's important to understand that part of it is not just the teaching. Part of it is, is like not a father, but a mother in a certain sort of general roles is, 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 is to love them even when they're not living up to the high expectations of things. They talk about Reb Chaim, who was, who, who was uh, expressed like this. And they, they said that Reb Chaim's house in Risk was open to, uh, to the rabbis, to the, to the public, so much so there were babies born in his house, right? People didn't have, uh, didn't have a place to, to, to give birth. Um, and any people could come at any point in time. The stories go, I mean, it, 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 these are crazy stories. They say that, that somebody once said that the house of Reb Chaim of Brisk was a Rishus Arabim. And his son, Reb Velvel, used to say that's not true at all. It's like a, a Rishus Arabim, there are rules. You can't park here. You can't. You can't jaywalk there. He says it's a rishus ayachad of every individual in Brisk. Every uh, traits are like his own. In fact, and again, you know this the, the the story. They don't tell this kind of story about you and me. But they say that there was a fellow who was um, boarding in Reb Chaim's house, and he bumped into Reb Chaim in the kitchen, <laughs> and he said, "He says, tell me something. How long are you you know allowed to stay here? You know, like what's what's the what's the tenure like of 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 just boarding here?" And Rechaim says, I don't know, I've been here a few years and nobody's said anything. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, was, that was his, it was completely, there was no personal space um, whatsoever. In fact, um, when Rav Kook became the Rav of Yerushalayim, so if anyone has an opportunity, you should really go and visit his house. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, you can actually see where he lived and how he took, he received guests and you can see different places he learned. It's very, very beautiful. It's very, the House of Rav Kook is a museum today. Um, just behind Gula. Um, in a very upscale area, just just behind the Gula area, um, and so w where they, when he first came to Rishlam, people would walk in all the time, all the time. So much so that they, uh, he decided that his family decided to put up a very basic you know innovation, which was a, a sheet on the door with time slots, and people would have to sign up for time slots. And they came the next day, and they found that some ruffian had taken it down. So they put it up again, and the next day it's gone again. So they said they, they put it up a third time, they watched, and they saw that Rav Cook in the morning pulled it down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they asked him, but this doesn't work like that. You can't, you, you can't, 
you know, so, so, uh, um, so he says, he says, the Rav is, has to be there for everybody who's, who's, who's there at a time of need. Very hard story, story to swallow. In fact, in his office, which is preserved as it was, um, his, you see his shtender, and his shtender is a standing shtender. Why? Because he used to learn, when he was a Rav Yishalayim, he used to learn standing between the hours of 1 and 3 in the morning, because that was the only time he had to himself um, um, to learn. And he would fall asleep if he was sitting. Right? So that's, where, that's where he did a lot of his writing and his, and his thinking. Just, just to appreciate what that means, the other side of the equation. This is not teaching Torah. This is simply caring for the so many, so much pain in every community that has. I was just reading actually that Tzitz Eliezer of Waldenburg wrote an incredible um, uh, tshuva. Usually his tshuvas are responsive to halachic questions, but in the 18th volume, <laughs> Tzitz Eliezer of Waldenburg was prolific. In the 18th volume in Shuvah Samach Gimel, he talks about his Rebbe, Ratzi Pesach Frank, who, by the way, was a Talmud of Rav Kook, just so you should, you know, Ratzi Pesach Frank was in Yerushalayim, when Rav Kook came to Yerushalayim, they had a very close relationship. And this is what he says about Rav, uh, or Ratzi, Pesach, uh, Ratzi Pesach Frank, describing in, in such beautiful detail, um, the, um, first of all, his, his, his unbelievable attachment to Torah. I mean, he, he describes the Torah that Ratzi Pesach Frank would teach him before he went into an operation, Right, he went into a, to, to a medical operation, and then when he came out of anesthesia, continuing the same thought, like you know, it's just it's really uh, unbelievable. Ratzi Pesach wrote the Tshuvas Haritzvi, many many halachic uh, applications today, and certainly the Rav of Yerushalayim for many many um, Piskei Halacha. And so the, he says two uh, things which really caught my attention in, in this regard, beyond even the, the Torah and the Psak in Source Six. He says in the left-hand column, he says, Rav Frank didn't view entering the world as an exiting of the base midrash, but rather an extension of it. Meaning, when he dealt with the human condition, he felt that was an expression of Torah in motion. That's, that, that's what you're saying about Rav, Rav Frank. Isn't that a magnificent line? That the, the, when he dealt with the complications of real life, and real people and suffering, he felt that was an extension of his learning of Torah in the base Medrash. That was, that was the, how he understood it, not an interruption. He goes on further, and this is a little more terrifying, in the right-hand side. He says, Again, this is a phrase you hear all the time. You don't hear this about academics in, 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 uh, in the university. Okay, there were such brilliant professors that their, that their house was always open. That was, that's not the way we describe them, right? Brilliant and, and how many peer-reviewed articles and uh, how many books, that, that, yes, and lectures and oratory, but we don't, we don't talk about this. This is, this, is, this is uniquely Jewish when it comes to Rabbanus. He says, his house was always open. There was no limitation time. Again, something which came back to Rav Cook as well, who he was very close to. So when they said, listen, for health's sake, you need to have a rest in the afternoon. And when they're knocking on the door every two minutes, you can't have a rest. So you really should. So when he got upset with his family for making that suggestion. He says, whenever people were to criticize him for his, his policy, he would bring this following Allah in Mesechas Smachos. 
These are the two of the ten martyrs that we talk about on Yom Kippur and Tishabab, when Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon were killed by the Roman, by the Romans. So you Rabbi Shmuel Boiche, Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol was was weeping. Amal Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon, who was the Nasi, said to him, um, "You know where you're going, right? You know what kind of life you led. Led two steps away, you're in, you're in, you're in, you're in a Gan Eden. Why are you crying?" I'm crying because this is not the worthy end of a life that we lived. This is not. This is not what we deserve because of the life we lived. Maybe you're going to rest, and somebody came and asked you a, a sensitive question about family purity, and you said, "I'm, I'm just just wait until my the end of my nap." And that's the, the Ramban's gears, and he says the other gears is meaning not he didn't even say it, he was sleeping, but the shamash, his representative, said she just he's re, he's resting. Don't afflict those who are in need, or specifically the widow and the orphan. And it says and the is So he says so. Receive Pesach Frank says, how could I possibly turn away away somebody for a shaila? Because the Torah says, if somebody's in a time of need and you turn them away, they might fall into the category of, of Gerbiyasam, and that's a very serious thing to close the door on somebody like that. So just to just understand the ethos with which he lived, this was not the Torah silo of his life, although he viewed it as an extension. This was the parent silo in, in his life, which was a very different and very powerful way of doing this. And this, and this by the way, is, is, is incredibly, um, incredibly emotionally taxing. This is a different, different realm altogether because this is relationships with, with, with everybody. This is guiding people through every aspect of, their, of life to hatch, match, and, uh, to hatch, match, and dispatch, as they say. Um, but it's it's uh, it's from birth to to to, to specific time periods so like bar and bat mitzvah to marriage to counselling to afterwards to marital issues child uh, issues ra- child raising gayrus issues financial issues um, the, the people who live alone visits to people in hospital and by the way it's not like in the old days where the, the base of was in like a little the shtot where it was like you know five minutes down the road we're talking about when we're talking about you know Lenox Hill and we were talking about uh, Mount Sinai we're talking about at least an hour each direction just for one trip. Just to understand, the Bikr Khalib is a different, a different surah today than it used to be. Um, end of life issues, complicated questions, um, hospice issues, funerals and shiva, all the way through from the beginning to the end. This is, this, is, this is a completely different domain of rabbi. And it's interesting to work, as we go through these different pieces, it's interesting to think about ourselves, what do we resonate more as what we think the rabbi should be? Because each of us think about the rabbi as a particular thing based on our own experiences. So everybody has their own view of what the rabbi is, but these are all pieces. The next piece is the Poisek. This, this is what Rav, the Rechiel Mikhail Epstein talked about. And we talked about this Moshe Rabbeinu in Parshish Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu, his father in law, comes and he says, Welcome, welcome, welcome. He gives me his, his special room, um, bathroom, and suite. And then the next morning he says, Where are you going, Moshe? He says, Oh, well, I'm, I'm dealing with, with Klaus, so I'm dealing with all their cases, all their, all their situations, and I'm giving them what Hashem says. Um, and, and at that point in time, his father in law. Um, ventured to give him some very helpful advice and says, um, "Novel Tibol, you're gonna you're gonna wither," and he gives him a little bit of assistance in the whole process. But th- this is one of the significant roles of of, of a rav. As the so the the, uh, the Seder Olam Rabbah talks about this, we learned this a couple a couple weeks ago. That uh, by the end of the Seder Olam, when to talk about the Tanah on Jewish history, where um, the Seder Olam says, "Amad Melech Gibor Amdoi Tishaver," he says, "Who Alexandros smoked on the Alexander the Macedonian arrived." Um, 
that um, the nevo- as nevoah ebbed away, then entered in the realm of chachma. Chachma means to say we don't know what to do. <laughs> we don't have divine inspiration. We can't see through the lattice work. We, we're really living in a dark world. But what do we do? So the chachamim need to spend their entire lives trying to figure out what to do and using everything they possibly can within the wherewithal to remove all biases, to be able to apply themselves, to see how this Torah should apply in this particular, in this particular situation, which is what we learned about in previous weeks. This it comes to the realm of psak. And this is not just about teaching. Because teaching is wonderful, but this is about actually what to do, normative action, which requires an incredible amount of, uh, of dirt. Um, the the Gemara actually says that in this, in this realm, you might say, oh, well, wouldn't it be better if we had Nevi'im? It wouldn't be so nice. We could know exactly what to do. It would be so helpful. The Gemara says in Baba that it is better to have a sage than to have a prophet. Why? What does that mean? Rav Cook has an, a, an essay um, in Orot where, in, um, where he talks about the idea of the Nevi'im giving us the general scope, the big, big picture of what Hashem wants. And the Chacham not dealing with the big picture, but it's saying in this particular situation, what is Halacha based on the, the axioms and the rules? What does it apply? How do I tie my shoelaces in this situation? Details. And he says it's important to have details and structure because I mean, the big picture doesn't lead to actual action necessarily. And so you're saying Chacham Aruf Minov means that we need the global structure, the forest, and we need the trees. And he said, by the way, as an, as, at the end of time, at the time of Geula, you're going to start seeing the movement away from details and back to big picture, which is what's happening now. Right? So this idea is like, wow, we're getting caught up in the details. We need the details and we need the big picture. And that's the emergence, the conversion that we're, we're seeing now is, is at the end of stage when there's Chachma and coming together. But nonetheless, this is the, requi- the, requ- the requirements of Psak. I happen to have a unique... Um, situation is that a number of Rabbonim in town actually got sued for issuing um, um, guidance when it came to Kashras um, and, and you know, defamation suits and all kinds of, all kinds of really uh, uh, trumped up charges um, and, um, and the case was dismissed as would be, uh, as would be obvious um, um, based on First, first Amendment um, which is important being said that, that clergy has the right to exercise the moral moral uh, um, uh, um, advice when it comes to particular areas that pertain to Judaism and or any religion it's very important <laughs> for anybody and so but in in the in the proceedings so one of the things that the, that the judge said was that you know like um, can you kind of provide sources as to like you know the fact that rabbis have the opportunity r- right to do this and it's everywhere but when you think about it it's, it's a basic un- underpinning it's a it's a foundation stone for Judaism but it happens to be I just I, I put together a few a few things just so you know it's worthwhile thinking about this so there's there's a number of chuvas like you know the, this notion of we looked at this beforehand in many other sources earlier sources but in the chuvas and the right response which is the acronym the the ma'arif um, who is uh, Rav Yaakov Faraji who lived in, in Cairo talks about this and he says. Um, the, the rule which we saw in earlier sources, but this happens to be in a more recent contemporary times. When do you say I need to say I follow the majority of the rabbis is when you're absent of having a teacher. You're absent of being in a, in a, in a shtat, in a place that has a, has a posek. So if you live in the city and you ask the rav questions for everything else, you have to ask about this as well, even though maybe other cities are different. If there's, of course, there's grounds. If there's, even though it might be a shetas yachid, as long as it's within Allah, you have to follow that. Very important, right? That means say you can't just Google the fact that there's, there happens to be another rabbi or somebody's called a doctor, you know, in you know, in Texas who happens to have another opinion. That's not intellectually honest, right? That's not the way we operate in in in, in everything else. Um, the the shivas tzion, Rav Shmuel Landau, who um who is who was a the son of 
the um, of Rav Yecheska Landal, um, the the Nodi Yehuda says Sharel Pidin. He talks about a a, a shoychet in town. A shoychet is not allowed to exercise. He's not allowed to operate in town unless he has shown his shchit enough and, and has gone through a test with the Rav. He's he's not he's not allowed to be involved in the town unless there is a poisek. This town is under the jurisdiction of that of that. Rav, Rav Moshe talks about the Vada Kashrus in. Um, in, uh, in Philadelphia, where there was somebody else who came into town and said that they wanted to start their own thing. And he says that that's not appropriate. It's a, the, that the Rabbonim of the town have to get together and figure out what's important for this town. And if there's things that are, not, that are, that are coming in which are not appropriate, <laughs> you have to, that, it's their responsibility for the, we'll call it standards in the town. So there's many, many aspects. This happens usually just being kashras, but there's many, many other elements where the Rav is seen as a poisek. He has to do this. I, I personally today, um, uh, disavow the term Morada Asra because there's, in, an, in a, uh, an area like this, there's no one Asra. There's, there's multiple, multiple shuls. It's not like the little village in Eastern Europe anymore. And there's no Morris either. So, so it's a Morada Asra. Two, two terms don't work together. But Rabbi, at least the Rabbi has a semblance of what, of what it should have been um, in, in a particular, at least in a community. Um, and th- this, in, this involves, um, so Shilas, um, all, all kinds of uh, uh, um, questions which are more and more complicated today because as technology advances, questions become more complicated. The researching all these things, some of them are open, closed book shilas, but some of them are more complex, newer issues, issues we never, we've never heard of beforehand. There are very, very complex questions. I'd love to share one. There's one which is actually just uh, in developing right now in the last week, which is a fascinating question, but it's not fully finished yet. I'll be, I'm, I hope uh, God, will be a sh- God willing will be a share in the future. But there are so questions we're never asked beforehand, never, never de- dealt with or dreamt with because of the complexity of, of them. And it takes hours and hours and hours of time to do this. But that also means to say things as small as, what are the standards of the locks on the kitchen door in a shul? Who has the keys to a kitchen shul? That also falls in the realm of not as teacher, not as not as caregiver or pastoral caregiver, but realm. You know, uh, there was a there was an, uh, when I first became rabbi of the, of the shul. Rabbi Talabam called me up on every pastor and he says, "You know, you know, it's important that the rabbi of a shul needs to do the bedikas chametz in a shul, right? Because who else is do, do, you, is it, do you know anybody else who's doing this? The bedikas chametz in, in the shul? That's the rabbi, right? So I went and I, I was doing bedikas chametz. I appreciated that because again, this is another sort of hidden thing that nobody really knows about." Um, when I was going through and in the youth center in, the, in that, that room with all the books in the corner, I opened up the door and guess what? There were 100 bagels. 100 bagels. And then it reminded me that on Simchas Torah that year, what happened was that the tiny Tatakafas, just before Simchas Torah, we, 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 we brought out all the food and there were no bagels. And so we took all the rolls from the Kiddush the next day. So the people the Kiddush the next day and Simchas Torah complained there was no rolls to make. To make we said, but there were, there were no bagels, but there were bagels. <laughs> but I'll tell you the truth is that the preserving agent in those bagels was very good. <laughs> they were just like they came off the shelf. A little harder, but uh, <laughs> there was no mold. Um, so nonetheless, but that was, that's a real situation. So Baruch Hashem, they were got rid of and the shul was not over. The community was not over on uh, on. on uh, but that's because that would be a rabbi doing that. That's part of the psych, part of the realm of, uh, so to speak, the, the halachic responsibility for what goes on. How do the CCTV camera, uh, cameras operate? How does, the, how does the, the sun pump work downstairs? All these things are these basic small things. How does the, the, the water fountains work? Right? Um, or how fast does, it, does the refrigerator switch on when you press the button? These are questions, and this is just in the realm of the shul. Forget beyond in terms of, in terms of the, the, this is just one building. Um, of, of, of that, 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 that's encompassed in, in this particular area, which is, which is really important. But let's go a little further. See, it, things have changed a little bit 
um, a little bit a little bit beyond this. Oh, actually, I just want to just want to just one story, which is which is um, very intense story. Um, but uh, but it, 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 this is this is a story which which happened, which I think merges the last two things, and that is that Rav Moshe Feinstein was once called up with a question about abortion, a very very difficult question. Um, these are very, very painful, painful questions. Um, and uh, he, he was very machmer, generally, generally speaking. And if a, a husband calls up and saying that, the, 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 that he and his wife had conceived and she was pregnant, but she was suffering from depression and, um, and she couldn't handle what was going on already. And this could put her really in you know, a psychologically um, life-threatening situation if they should to go through the pregnancy, it's early stages. And they, they just, she can't handle it. And so Rav Moshe called up her, her, her psychiatrist, who happened to be Rabbi Dr. Abram J. Tversky, as well. And he said, you, do you know such and such a patient? And he says, yeah, I do. And uh, he said, you know, um, with the permissions to speak to her, of course, um, and uh, to, uh, to him about her. And he says, is it true that if she were to have, to, have a, to have a child, you would be concerned about her on a psychiatric level in terms of her mental health. And uh, Dr. Tversky said, yes, I'm concerned about her uh, as Pikoach Nefesh. Now, you say that at the end of the conversation, right? That should be it, Pikoach Nefesh. And this is where psychiatric health is, um, although you're harder to put, pin down, but it's, it's uh, equal, if not more terrifying, consequences in physical health, immediate physical health. Um, and uh, sort of Moshe says, but let me ask you a question. Is it true that if she were not pregnant now, then truth be told, she would still have problems. She would be, still be suffering. So Dr. Twersky said, that's correct. So he says, well, tell me, what is the financial standing of this family? So he says, well, you know, they, they get by. They're, they're all right. He says, do you think that a contributing factor to her, the state of her mental health is the feeling that things are out of control and they cannot afford to have house help to be able to, to, to deal with these things? So Dr. Twersky said, that is true. That is true. They, she, they, they, don't, they can't afford any help. And it's an incredible burden on them already with the children that they have. And that's, uh, that's already sort of what she says, which means to say that it may be true that the pregnancy itself by itself could be a threatening factor. But in, with the absence of the pregnancy, they're already in a terrible state, which means to say that you know and I know that the halacha is that an abortion cannot happen, but that we have to raise the money to be able to ensure that she will have house help for the next few years. Right? Do you, do you understand what that means? Now that's, just to understand that, that we, we're not Rav Moshe Fancy and we didn't hear all the details of the case. But to understand what that means is that the psak, which has an incredible, the, the onus of that and the responsibility of that psak and that, those lives that, that he, had to, he had to deal with, involved the actual, the previous silo, which is the carer, the caregiver as well. Right? So, and, so and not every situation is the same, but part of that is the merging of all these pieces together. But now it gets more complicated, because these are only three silos. And there's much more. And so, so what happens is that as the rabbinate hits the 21st century, there's more. So you say, well, what, what's more? So the, the, the Gemara in, in Moed Katan tells us in Vomad, it's talking about communal regulations. What really is important that there are community regulations. The Gemara is talking about all kinds of things. Like Metzayin and Alakvaris, the Gemara says, that, that all, all cemeteries need to be demarcated. Why? Because of Kohanim and Oichelet Shuma and all, you know, so you don't want it to be that there are people in an impure area. So this is a communal responsibility to regulate um, where the, the Besak forest was. The Gemara says in the second paragraph, You need to have a person who's an expert enough how to deal with these situations. And the Gemara says, I learned from here, 
Tzorba Merabonan De'ikah B'masa, if you have a Tzorba Merabonan, this is not even a rabbi, this is a student of a rabbi, right? Somebody who's, uh, who's, who's supposed to be learned. Kormili De'masa Alei Ramya. All the matters of that community uh, uh, fall upon them. Wow, that's a very heavy statement, which means, say, all the issues of that community fall upon them. Remember, Rabbi Talibah was telling me one time that it was snowing and there was a 6.30 million on a Sunday. That's what, that's what we have, right? But guess, uh, guess what? Guess who had to go through the snow to be able to open up the building in order to make sure that the minion would take place? Says, yeah, that's the rabbi, right? Because it, it has to happen. Because in case the gaba is not going to make it, but there might be a minion who's still coming. Which means that as the issues emerge, then the job responsibility emerges, uh, extends as well. So just like a few, there was actually an issue in 2013 of Jewish action. And the issue was talking about um, the, the, uh, called the changing rabbinate. It was uh, if the fall 2013. I highly recommend reading it. It's really, uh, really, really fascinating. To me, it was fascinating because actually it happened to be that was personally I happened to come to the shul in the fall 2013. This is my 10th year here. Um, so in the fall of 2013 was, was, was when I was coming here. It happened to be, and I'd already been out of Smith a number of years, but, um, but it, was, it, was, uh, it was fascinating to read this article. So there's a number of things that were said um, in this article, which I think that we'll call Extend the Parameters. So the article begins, it says, A strong cup, a, a cup of coffee in hand, he stares at the computer screen, putting his final touches on his Shabbos Joshua. He then reviews the latest building campaign spreadsheet, adds the name of an, of an addiction specialist to a, psych, a psychologist re- re- referral, calls a colleague to secure his Scotland residence for the next month, and starts to prepare the next day's Daf Yomishir. He got, he's got five minutes to catch up on the backlog of email shalos before the nine o'clock marriage counseling appointment. Welcome to the 2013 um, American Rabbit. Now, by the way, <laughs> fast forward nine years, it's, uh, 10 years, it's, it's, uh, it's only getting more exciting. Um, and um, so, uh, so the, uh, with the advent of commu- communication in the way that, it's, uh, that, that we have it today, if you continue to read, it's just, it's just fascinating. I, there was a beautiful, beautiful example that Rapprozanski talks about. Um, he talks about um, the following at the bottom of the, se- the, the column on the left. He says, two lines in the morning. He says, one of the things I speak about is a piece of paper I constantly carry with me. He says, before a funeral, um, a, while, a while back, I took a piece of paper to record eul- uh, the eulogizers. Uh, to just get an idea, to remember ideas, that, that, to make it much more meaningful to connect. Later that day, I was uh, 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 to officiate at a wedding and jotted down who would be getting, uh, who, who, who would be getting to recite the Shevah Brachos. When I reached in my pocket for the Shevah Brachos list, I, I instead took out the paper that had the list of eulogizers. <laughs> I reached into my pocket again and there was nothing there. I turned the paper over in my hand and there was, there was the Shevah Brachos list. It was two sides of the same paper. We are there for our congregants with joy at their smachos and at, with tears at their moments of grief. The rabbi has to be 100% wherever he is. That, that was such a beautiful example of, of sort of all the multiple dimensions. I want to give a few dimensions of what is included in that now, just to understand this. Is, um, most people say that in order to be an effective rabbi of a shul, you need to be able to be good within what we'll call the non-for-profit sector, right? Because a shul is non-for-profit. I would say that's not true. It's more than that. And, and most people aren't aware of this. One of the great skills is volunteer management. If you think about this for a moment, a shul is a mon- minuscule staff, right, as opposed to a school, any other corporation. Minuscule staff. We have how, how many people on staff for, for full time? Very few, right? But there's thousands of people who need servicing. So how does it work? Is volunteer groups, right? So we have committees, we have gr- groups, and a lot of the groups are, are self-made, which are incredible because people are so good. And a lot of them require a little bit of fire underneath, right? All the different pieces that, that happen, how many tens of committees that are, that, are, that are happening all the time. And a lot of them don't happen. The meetings don't happen. The minutes aren't taken. The follow-up isn't done without 
the rabbi doing the volunteer management, the follow-up to make sure that people are doing and showing their best, which they are able to do, but there's so many things that need to happen um, in, in that terms. Then there's the office manager as element. That's not in external, but internal. Happens to be there's a lot of things that go that, 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 that are happening. And certainly, certainly when you have like bigger shawls, when you have multiple different pieces, there are things that are going on where it's PR and, and, and what kind of tools we're using, how fast are we doing it, um, the communication, meetings, daily meetings, weekly meetings, um, we'll call it modu uh, uh, models of, uh, um, of uh, workflow. All, uh, a lot of that uh, does, does come down to the rabbi as well. Um, technological officer, so anytime there's a new platform of technology, you will see Torah pouring into it, right? And that's because there are incredibly creative minds in this generation who are learning how to Every time there's a new opportunity, that new opportunity becomes a forum, becomes a vehicle or mo uh, medium for Torah study and teaching, right? So when, when WhatsApp was emerging, the WhatsApp groups of Torah emerged, right? So with any, any realm, when it comes to Zoom, when it comes to anything, any emerging technology, it has to be utilized and, and made part of the experience of learning. That, 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 that's a completely different skill set as well. Now, the therapist piece of it as well comes down to the caring piece, but the, it's important to realize there's the free in front of that, right? Which makes it less useful because what that means to say is that, that therefore a rabbi will be called in um, because they don't charge by the hour, right? They don't charge by the hour and, um, and, um, and, they'll be, and therefore their advice is also less valued because they aren't paid for it. It would be wonderful um, if they, uh, rabbis could bill by the hour for this. But the, the, this, this happens all the time, hours upon hours upon hours. I remember there was one particular situation where, where, where uh, I was helping a particular individual and was getting, it was a order of protection and we coming out from the precinct at 11.30, 11.45 at night. There were other plans that night, but th that was what happened. And I remember I was walking back with, you know, with the lawyer and the, and the, and the psychologist and I was like, ah, oh, really helped somebody t t today. And then I said, oh, and the lawyer and the, and the psychologist are all going to bill by the hour. <laughs> The rabbi doesn't, right? So, so that, that's, that, that's, that's, part of the, that's part of what happens. There's the rabbis, the fundraisers. So Baruch Hashem, we have an incredible community that has so much, so much fundraising, but there's also elements where it takes a lot of money to float, to float Torah. It takes a lot of money to float an institution, right? Just forget, forget the lights, heating, and, and water. But there's a lot that goes into, the, into these kind of things. And there's a responsibility and a growing responsibility on the, the rabbi to do this. And the community ambassador piece, most people are unaware of this, but as an example, um, let's say when there's um, APAC, NORPAC, um, when there's, when there's um, town hall meetings, when there is uh, press conferences, all these types of things, well, guess what? Guess who's going to represent us, right? Guess who's, who's driving out an hour on a Friday, uh, Friday afternoon to go to a press conference about anti-Semitism in Suffolk County, right? And uh, which nobody will ever know about. But it's important because of relationships. It's, because, it's important because of that. Well, that's what the rabbi has to do. Is to is to represent, um, is to is to say that the Jewish community com uh, matters. That you say that the Jewish community cares. That's also part of it as well. And then finally, is the customer service representative. This part I think I resent the most. Um, but uh, <laughs> but the, but the piece is, is is that it's all like the first line of combat is is is. Um, is if uh, the rabbi gets blamed for things they don't do, good and bad. Rabbi, it was the, the, the heating was just perfect in shul today. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that had nothing to do with me. Rabbi, it was too cold in shul. Also had nothing to do with me. But the point is that, that, that but those are the less serious. But there are real, there are the real complaints and real issues that need to be dealt with. And, uh, and the rabbi has to, has to deal with these things in many ways. Now, you could say these all come into the previous sections, the previous three silos, but I, I think that it's more complex. The way I look at it is there's four main silos, which is the teacher, the pastoral carer, the organizer, and the ambassador. Organizer ca captures a lot of what we're talking about over here and all the different pieces, pieces of it. So you say, so what do we make of this? So the first thing we need to make of this is um, 
is that this is inhumane. Right, let's, 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 let's <laughs> okay, nobody, nobody has enough time in the day or week to do all of this. Um, so you just have to basically cut off certain things all the time. There's always sacrifices because you're never doing enough. But I think it is important to, to realize that it's not possible to do a customer service representative and a teacher at the same time because you cannot prepare a lecture if you're getting interrupted every two minutes, which is a situation. So it has to be that you have to bifurcate or set up different, different we'll call it, um, job descriptions for workflow and work execution. As, any, as a regular doctor, a doctor cannot be sitting at the front desk scheduling and billing and, and be treating patients. The same, it, it, the same thing works in the rabbinate as well, which is why it's important to set up systems which enable this to be the better way of doing things, which is why it's not always access. It's not always because, although we may want to think it's access, it's important that there is, there's an element of this is, actually a, this is actually a preparation time, this is a meeting time, it's not possible to, to, uh, to have access during this time. But I think to me, the most meaningful of all of this was a, a, uh, a, a um, lecture that was given by Rabbi Dr. Lamb and the 2002 Chag HaSmecha. Every few years, it used to be every four years, why you would do a Chag HaSmecha where all the graduates of Smecha for those four years would be now, so to speak, ordained public. It was a beautiful thing, really a beautiful thing. It became so much that they're only doing it every three years now because um, when, in, my, in, my, in my, can you remember this? There was, there was 235 rabbis who were being ordained. If you can imagine what that means, it's, it's unbelievable. And there were not enough seats for the parents in the, in the auditorium of, that seated over a thousand just to, just to have this moment. So it's now done every three years. And Rabbi Norman Lamb, um, spoke, why you, is the, why you is the greatest, Reitz is the, the greatest producer of Rabbonim in all of America, in all of the world, uh, per year, um, are coming out of Reitz, are coming out of uh, Yeshiva University, um, forgetting any, any other Yeshiva. Um, um, and um, at, this, at the Chag in 2002, he, he asked the following question. I think this is really the core of it all, um, and so important, so important. Is he said like the following, we say in Davening, we quote two Memorus Chazal back to back, we say the following, in the yeshiva of Eliyahu, they used to say, Anybody who teaches, learns halachas every day is considered a ben olam belongs to the world, the world to come. Right, a change in the wording of the Pasuk. The next line that we have in davening is, that the sages bring peace to the world. And so on and so forth, right? Uh, I think that uh, Sachs, you said this is where Chazal employ um, um, humor um, in, in, in the Mishnah. But nonetheless, um, so Rabbi Lamb's observation was, wait a second, if the first statement is, is about the importance of learning halacha every day, then what should the next phrase be? I should be teaching halacha. What is this? This is Mili Dagaritz. It's a beautiful thing. It's wonderful. Shalom. Peace. It's beautiful. Right? But that isn't halacha. Should you have halacha, halacha? Cold and hard. What do you do? Right next. That, that, should, that should be what the next thing is. And that was the question he asked. And he says, and he, and, and he said, I just saw a beautiful article where Benjamin, Benjamin Samuels put, put this together in a tradition article last year. And he says, and Rabbi Lamb looked at her and he says, you know what the pshat is? You know what's really going on? He says, it is a halacha. The requirement of a Talmud Chacham is to be marbe sholom ba'olam. That's not, that's, not, that's not esoteric. Which means, and I think this comes down to everything that's happening over here is there are so many different parts of the rabbinate because the com community itself is so complex. There's so many needs. There are different demographics. There are different age ranges. There's a, the, the bandwidth and the depth of a community is unimaginable. And the rabbi has to be there for all of that. But part of it is to be marbe shalom ba'olam is for not just the different hats worn to have a, a sense of unity, but for the different people in the community to have the empathy to realize there's more going on 
that meets the eye in their part of the community. And that to me is, I think, really the Marabesh Shalom Ba'olam. Is if you think about this for a moment, people come in and, and say, there's not enough programming for youth, right? right? There's not enough programming for young couples. There's not enough programming for retirees. There's not enough pro- programming for, for empty nesters, right? Everybody says there's not enough programming, right? And, and, uh, and so then the shul tries, right, with the very limited energy and time and money to do all these programs. We do, Baruch Hashem, now there's a, now there's a retiree program on Mondays. And the youth, youth groups are fantastic. And we had, in this room last night, we had over 50 kids and their parents learning. And then we had a Taras Mishpacha thing last night in this thing. Another 40 women came out and stayed here till 10.30 last night in this, in this room. And, that's, and nobody, know, nobody knows that because this group is not that group. None, none, none of those groups, right? Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that as the community becomes more aware of itself, and the fact that the rabbi or the leadership has to be at every one of these, then the more the community becomes empathetic to the fact that it's bigger than simply one monolithic, we'll call it slice of the pie. You know, I find it so fascinating when I'm going to, to, to drive, I'm scheduled. So when I'm on a drive, I have every drive scheduled. I have an, today I've got an hour and a half drive, two directions for a wedding. Um, uh, somebody, Baruch Hashem is wonderful. Not, not somebody's even in the community. Somebody comes to one of our It's wonderful and there should be many, many smartphones, right? But it's, it's out to the, to the Rockley in New Jersey, right? And so of that one and a half hours, I have calls lined up the entire one and a half hours there and the one and a half hours back. I'm not going to make it otherwise because there's, there's too many calls to make, right? So, and what's fascinating is most of the time when I'm on, a, on the way to a simcha and I'm making these calls, I realize the people I'm calling have no idea which simcha I'm going to because that's not their part of the community. And that's the precise, that's the precise point. Means to say, in all of these ideas, whether it's the teacher or the poisek or the, or, or the pastoral giver, and every one of us has a little narrow view of what the rabbi should be because of a childhood experience or a childhood mentor or things like that. It's important to be able for us to break through and have the empathy to realize that the community is bigger. There's so much more going on in a community than our unique little piece. And that straddling all those pieces together is our growth as a community because we become better through appreciating this. And I'll close the story. Is this Simchas Torah? Uh, as we're getting our call on the RM, a little boy, a little 11-year-old boy, um, came to me off, uh, off the Bima, um, and he said to me, uh, and he said to me, Rabbi Trump, is there, are there any Holocaust survivors in the shul? I said, absolutely, actually, you, you're right behind you. And I came over and I said, let me take you. And I took this little boy and I said, um, and I said to him, I'd like you to meet Mr. Gross. Mr. Gross was on the train, which turned around from Auschwitz. I'd like you to ask him a little bit about this. And Mr. Gross and this little boy sat there um, for half an hour. And they sat there talking, and this boy was mesmerized. 11-year-old, fifth grader, right? Now he has, you know, never, never in his life. Whatever, we don't know what, what got into his mind. I said, that's the beauty of being in a community. It's not a little shtibble where it's just the people I hang out with, my little demographic of 32 to 35-year-olds, and that's, that's my little group. It's much bigger than that. We're, we're, a Jewish community is interpollination, cross-pollination between age groups and interests and being able to sit together and hear each other. And the Rav, in a certain sense, is the nexus of all those places to be able to help us hear each other because we're all richer together. That, to me, is the, is, is the piece which makes, makes it all worthwhile, is being able to, in a, in a humane way, to be able to make all those connections because that's what Judaism, that's what the Jewish community is about. So, Rabbi, so we close this, we close this series. Um, and this was very cathartic. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> 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 and Bezra Hashem, looking forward to next week.